This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Rocket Steiner, thank you for finding time to speak with the Straits Times. I know you must be really back-to-back and terribly busy out there in Glasgow. Well, it's the second week, Nirmal, and in that sense, um, the pressure is on now because I think not only the world is watching, but also the delegations are watching each other. And this is really the phase where, you know, negotiations have to deliver not just intentions, but really outcomes. So it is an intense uh, few days that lie ahead. Absolutely. And uh, the fact that you mentioned it's a critical week, what in your opinion, what is your opinion on this COP so far? I mean, there has been progress, obviously, but so far it has been below expectations or below what is necessary to meet the 1.5 degrees target. Of course, as you say, the nuts and bolts are still being worked on and there is clearly a vital need for more um, adaptation financing. What is your impression and your message in this critical week? Well, I think, first of all, to the world um, at large, I would say what you saw last week is something that I think is undeniable, that more and more countries, more and more sectors in our economy, more and more communities truly are not only recognizing the threat of global warming, of climate change, but indeed are beginning to act on it. So the commitments you saw last week on deforestation, on methane, um, but also on phasing out coal, the high ambition coalition, These are all indications that um, groups of countries, um, parts of the economy are really moving forward. And that is a good signal. It should give us both courage and it should give us a sense of perspective that we are not where we were five years ago, five and a half years ago when we were in Paris or even two years ago before this pandemic set in. We are seeing a world with, in some parts of the global economy, Uh, stimulus packages that are now running into the hundreds of billions that include the DNA of a green recovery. So I think from that point of view, to those who are looking for a light at the end of the tunnel, there is certainly a glimmer. I think to those who still are worried whether we'll ever get to the end of the tunnel, meaning stay within a 1.5 degree world, so far, lots of good announcements, but in terms of the materiality to where we need to be, still far from where we need to be. So I think much now rests on the ability of these negotiators to find common cause. The only way that we can reach the kind of transformations that we need, the kind of investments that are needed in the energy sector, in the mobility sector, is if the world works together on this. And I think that is really the hard piece of what is um, being negotiated this week here in Glasgow. So I think um, too early to judge. Right. So um, I just wanted to come for briefly to the issue of small island states and specifically small island developing states, which I think you have spoken a lot about and I've written about as well. The promises have the delivery has been below the promises in terms of climate uh, adaptation, finance and so forth. And some are saying this is a small change for small island states that ironically contributed possibly the least of all other countries to global warming. So what is your uh, view of this issue in particular? You know, there are two ways in which I think one can best sum this up. One is climate justice or injustice, as you already alluded to. And secondly, uh, an extraordinary missed opportunity. First of all, climate injustice, it is a fact that these small island uh, developing states as economies, historically speaking, and even in today's world, are really not major contributors to our global warming problem. And yet they are existentially threatened. And not only in the medium term, let's say, 
where sea level rise might actually literally lead to their disappearance as nations, as places where people can live, but also these uh, extreme weather events that we are seeing more and more frequently. Um, Caribbean island nations, Pacific island nations, when hurricanes, typhoons pass through, in a matter of 12, 24 hours, um, a fifth, a third of the economy can be wiped out. Infrastructure is destroyed. And yet, ironically, because these are considered not least developed countries, uh, in fact, they're middle-income countries by per capita GDP, they do not classify for traditional international development finance. And even on climate finance, it has been very slow. And I think what we are looking for as an international community, and certainly UNDP's work in working alongside many of the small island developing states in framing their national climate strategies, their NDCs, as they're called in the climate conference, is precisely to document how little it would take for the international community to enable a country in the Caribbean to move entirely to renewable energy, for example, but also to invest in adaptation. They are fractions of what we are discussing in industrialized countries being mobilized right now. And yet they would have a developmental benefit, a climate benefit, and ultimately also an adaptation benefit, namely to be able to survive better, to be more resilient in these increasingly risky times. So we really have to move forward on this. And I hope that the climate financing discussions here in um, Glasgow will finally provide some solace to those countries who feel that they've had a very hard deal in the last 20 years. Right. So there is deepening and widening anger, especially in the younger generation in some countries, of course, particularly in the West, we've seen the crowds at Glasgow, and also to some degree in the global South, about the inadequacy of the response to the threat of a 2.7 or even, even a 3 degrees warmer world. There are significant fissures today everywhere we look between the middle class and the wealthy, between rationality and science and so forth. And some have even warned of uprisings or revolutions. If this process fails to deliver and the disruption of global warming affects more and more people, especially poorer people, do you see the potential for a new dimension of political turmoil and conflict if we as a species fail to make the changes necessary to avert a worst, a worst case scenario? Well, you know, social tensions, political disruption, revolutions never happen because of a singular cause. But there are three ways in which I think we can begin to understand the potential risks that climate change now poses to, let's say, political and economic stability. The first one is simply the kind of economic disruption that can um, result from either extreme weather events, the kind of floods or droughts that we have seen, the forest fires. And this is now a phenomenon that is affecting literally societies and economies across the globe. And we've seen even some of the wealthiest countries struggle for months to contain the impacts of these phenomena. So if climate science is right, they will increase in intensity. That means their significance to what happens next will grow exponentially. A second part, I think, is where, for instance, we are essentially forced to compete with one another more over resources. Take transboundary river basins, for instance. Uh, take the Mekong Delta. Um, you know, sea level rise is increasingly uh, creating salinization effects, i.e. impairing the ability to grow food. So whether it is less food security or whether it is a transboundary river basin where less water is available in future or perhaps on different hydrological cycles can be immensely disruptive. And suddenly um, communities have to compete over something that was plentiful, is now scarce, or countries suddenly find themselves essentially in a potential border conflict over a transboundary resource. So 
that equally can be extremely disruptive. And then I think the third part is what we're also seeing in many of our societies, which is more a, a, a deeper disengagement, a sense that the social contract is not holding up. And let's be honest, and as a generation of parents, it is an extraordinary phenomenon that we are still debating over how to maintain the utility and welfare of our current fossil fuel-based economy in full knowledge that this could actually compromise our own children's future. I don't think there is really a precedent in history where that kind of dichotomy is beginning to really drive frustration. And so when you see young people stepping onto the streets, on the one hand, they're looking for change. On the other hand, they're also expressing their frustration. And I think that, again, could contribute in countries that have perhaps you know, great inequalities and therefore compound itself, yes, into political radicalization, greater extremes and polarities in our political spectrum. So these are three ways, I think, in which I would not single out the young generation because in many ways they are perhaps our greatest hope because they are looking at this whole issue with in some ways far greater clarity and insight about what is needed than those who simply want to defend the status quo. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and on that note, I'm curious as to your opinion of the role and the future of Greta Thunberg. I mean, obviously, she needs no introduction. And she's become the most prominent global voice of her generation on this issue. And she called COP26 a greenwash conference. I'm curious as to your view of her of, of her role and her future in, in this movement. Well, I think probably what Greta Thunberg would least appreciate if I were to interpret her future or her options. So let me simply comment that I think um, she is best able to speak for herself in terms of the action she takes. And I think she is, on the one hand, a voice and a very vocal one for a whole generation of young people across the world. And I would also like to emphasize you said earlier on, maybe it's particularly in Glasgow, we see protests on the streets here. In fact, UNDP's People's Climate um, Poll polled people across the world. Um, the view about our era, our moment in time, really being a climate emergency, is now shared by young people in developed, developing countries, small island developing states across Africa, Asia, Latin America. I think young people are so connected today, they can understand and appreciate far more of what is happening. The fact that there are faces to such a movement, such as Greta Thunberg, um, I think is more a, a phenomenon of how the media, of how we all, in a sense, are looking for, for leadership. Um, but I think Greta Thunberg is the first example of somebody who, in fact, at critical moments, takes a step back because she does not see herself as a singular leader. And I think that really marks her and those who are battling with her out in particular at the moment. This is a movement and it is a movement full of leaders. And I think that is how I would interpret what, what I see happening around this COP right now as well. It's fascinating. I, 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 I hope I'm, I'm still around 10 years from now to see what people like Greta Thunberg have actually done. So what is your opinion um, of carbon capture and geoengineering solutions that are proposed by various people? Well, look, history has taught us um, that Luddites are never very good propositions. I, those who a priori deny the possibility of any technology or scientific breakthrough have more often than not perhaps been proven at least not accurate. What I would say is, um, you know, the ball is really in the court of those who are 
proposing that these are viable propositions. Um, up to now, I think we as a global economy, as a family of nations, have lower hanging fruit and greater possibilities to act quickly and certainly at lower cost per ton of carbon captured, for instance, by reforestation, by maintaining our ecological infrastructure, by restoring ecosystems. These are all um, actions that have multiple benefits for people, for planet, um, and indeed for, for, for our carbon challenge. So I would say beware of those who promise grand breakthroughs, particularly if they take us back to essentially an economy where one corporation or one particular economy controls the technology. Much of the last 50 years has taught us many bitter lessons when we have monopolies um, in our global economic context when it comes to technology. And so there are many questions to be answered. And it is for those who wish to elevate these options to actually bring more of the evidence that would make us look at them um, as essentially equivalent options. Right now, they are not. And what is your opinion as well of um, the device of carbon offsets? As you know, are they an effective tool, especially for some countries with limited options? Well, they were an early attempt to translate the imperative of acting on a physical uh, substance, i.e., emissions, with an economic incentive. Now, I think we can all see from the fact that um, you know emissions continue to grow that these instruments have so far had a limited impact. I think carbon markets in general will become more and more central to the way that our economies signal um, essentially incentives to either reduce um, reliance on fossil fuels or indeed invest in um, you know, carbon or CO2 uh, low emitting technologies. So from where we are right now, the challenge continues of what is the most effective economic policy instrument in order to both shift consumer behavior, produce um, investments, and ultimately move markets into a low carbon trajectory. And I think here, I think we will see and continue to see different countries experimenting with different forms of carbon markets. And um, in that sense, clean development mechanisms and other analogous tools will remain part of the toolbox. But the proof is in the pudding. We cannot continue to treat this as a laboratory where we continue to test. The real test right now is, can you exponentially drive carbon emissions down? And if a certain market mechanism is not delivering that, it should be set aside and others applied. Yes, as you say, the proof is in the pudding. I'm glad you said that because uh, I wanted to leave you with one last quick question. A lot of what we've seen has been unilateral statements of intent, you know, which is which, which is much better than better than we've had before, as you said right at the top. But little means of actual independent oversight or enforcement. So, as I said, the proof is in the pudding. Is this a going to be a potential problem going forward? The enforcement aspect. You know, I would be cautious to use the term enforcement because often, you know, multilateralism, the United Nations, people want to project onto it something that it doesn't have. I mean, you can't you know, send blue helmets into a country right. because it did not uh, essentially right. adhere to a commitment, be it on climate change or any other. I think it is more accountability. I mean, essentially, we have a shared interest as a global family right now. We have to move into a low-carbon future. We have to green our economies much more rapidly, and therefore we have a shared interest in doing so. I think what people sometimes underestimate, and it seems somewhat nerdy, 
what happens at these conferences of the parties and you know in the other 335 days in a year is that you have to write the rule books because in order for countries to be able to hold each other accountable to create transparency, you have to have these rule books. How do you measure from which year? What's the baseline? Who will verify independently? That creates confidence, that creates transparency. So I would say what the United Nations, what the climate conference and all the processes associated with it provide below that headline um, summary that, that goes with it is in fact enabling a world to transact with each other across national boundaries. And I think in that sense, I would say sometimes not the most exciting part of a COP, but actually the rule books are like in any kind of event that involves more than two people, the foundations for each side feeling that they're actually able to trust each other and be treated fairly. And so part of Glasgow is precisely to complete the rule book for the Paris Agreement. It's taken too long, but it's complicated. And um, in that sense, my hope is that even though that will not be one of the great fireworks celebrations um, by the end of Glasgow, but if that piece of work can be completed here, it is a big step towards enabling countries to move together with each other forward. Well said. Well, uh, good luck out there for this week, uh, especially. And uh, final, thank you for finding time to speak to the Straits Times despite your schedule. Over there. Always a privilege. Thank you very much. All the best. Thanks again. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.